Hello, and welcome to the Dockyard Elixir Roundtable. I'm Nathan Long. I'm the staff software engineer here at Dockyard. I'm Brooklyn Myers. I'm an Elixir educator here at uh, Dockyard as well. Hey, I'm uh, Zach Ellis. I'm a senior software engineer here at Dockyard. Mike Benz, staff software engineer here at Dockyard. Hi, I'm uh, Rocco Schrock, senior software engineer at Dockyard. I am Benny Rosas, and I'm a software engineer at Dockyard. I'm Andrew Barian, and I'm an Elixir engineer here at Dockyard. Fristovar here, Elixir engineer here at Dockyard. Awesome. So uh, we are um, going to talk about a project that Rockwell's been working on. Uh, we talked about it on a previous episode. I'll have to go back and find that episode number. Uh, but you made a really cool map. Uh, a METAR map, if that is indeed how it's said. <laughs> really cool blinking lights kind of physical project up on your wall. So if you would kind of start out by just telling us uh, again the, the quick overview of what that's for. Yeah, sure. So I talked about this the first show that I was on. Again, I don't remember the episode number either. Um, and what it is is a uh, it's a combination like hardware and software project where it's a, it's a map, physical map that's hanging on my wall. Um, with a bunch of LEDs, and the LEDs uh, are scattered throughout the map, and they indicate the weather at different airports all throughout you know my local region here in the Northeast. And uh, it's all it was all originally written in um, Elixir, and it has a little Phoenix front end web interface for controlling it. Um, when I did initially started the project. It was just running on plain old Ubuntu install. It's a Raspberry Pi Zero W as a hardware. So it's a wireless Raspberry Pi about the size of a, I don't know, stick of gum, maybe a little bigger. And uh, yeah, I was just running the standard, it's either Raspbian or Ubuntu, I forget, but just a regular Linux install. And then I just developed and ran uh, this Elixir application on top of that. It fetches the METARs down every hour or so. It does animations, it changes the lights, and uh, that's pretty much the whole thing. Um, now, rightfully, someone brought the question last time, like, well, why didn't you do it in NERVs, or is this done in NERVs? And uh, the reason I didn't originally do it that way is just because, I don't know, it was too many new things happening at once. I wanted to just get it working, and it was working fine um, for a couple of years. But uh, I wanted an excuse to use nerves, learn nerves. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, people talking about it now, and it seems really cool. So this is a good excuse to to get familiar with it. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit today about that sort of sort of what that process was like, and uh, some things I learned, some, you know, problems that I had, and so on. Um, and this is episode six. This is originally when I sort of introduced the idea. The, the, one of the first problems I have when converting the project was that you sort of have, I'm dealing with two different frameworks at once. You know, on one hand, it was just a plain old Phoenix application that I generated with, you know, mix Phoenix new. And then on the other hand, I've got a nerves project boilerplate that was generated using that, you know, those generators. So how do you like mesh these two things together? You can't make a new Phoenix nerves project. It's not a thing. But so because I was more familiar with, Phoenix internals, I felt a lot more confident. Okay, let me just make the nerves project, use its generators, do what it wants to do, and then piecemeal just move over all the individual pieces of Phoenix, the dependencies, the configuration, the build systems, all that stuff. Uh, and that was just basically like playing whack a mole. You know, there's a lot of pieces there 
to get Phoenix working. Uh, but I was able to do it, uh, much to Phoenix's credit. Like it is very modular and you can leave a lot of things out. So, um, and you can only include what you need to. So that was actually a pretty successful process was starting with this nurse thing and then just slowly moving the Phoenix pieces over until, until it worked. And now the core of the application is not Phoenix. It's just dealing with hardware and stuff. And all those libraries still continue to work the same as they do on Linux, as they do on nerves. So that was great. Um, the biggest headaches really, of course, just come down to JavaScript, you know, getting the build system working. Uh, I really wanted to add live view support. So I had to upgrade all the dependencies and get ES build working. And, you know, just, just that's the same old story with, with getting, uh, updating the latest and greatest thing. Um, spent most of my time, honestly, just updating dependencies and figuring out how to get the build system to work because you sort of have to build it locally and then push it to the, um, you know, device remotely or wired. Um, and so figuring out the difference between like a mix environment versus a nerves target, uh, was a little bit of, uh, messes with my head a little bit. I'm still not hundred percent sure on when I should like do something in dev versus prod and when it should be the, um, the host target versus like the device target, that sort of thing. Still kind of nebulous. Um, but, um, I think I was able to work out most of that and get it working. Uh, one cool thing I was able to do. So the whole reason was I sort of wanted to iterate on this project, improve the software. But beforehand, the development cycle was extremely slow because I had to make the change, compile it, or, or work remotely on the device and restart it. And you're like, it's really, really slow to iterate because you have to just the sort of like loop cycle where you develop something locally, you push it, and you just have to like wait and see the changes you made were successful or were they what you want. And uh, that's not really a great way to be productive. So after I got it working on the device, um, I realized that since it's just a Phoenix application, it can run locally. The only thing I don't have on my local you know, desktop computer is hardware. I don't have Raspberry Pi, IO pins. I don't have access to all of the different, you know, hardware devices that the Raspberry Pi does. So uh, what do we do when we want to run things that we, you know, don't want to have access to? We use mocks, we use behaviors, we use, uh, we fake things out. And so the same way that you would like mock out an API for a test um, and stub out some fake behavior, well, I did that with hardware too. So every access to an IO pin, access to the sensors that read the light levels in the room, um, I used our very simple like behavior pattern and abstracted that stuff all away. So now I can literally run the same code base locally with fake hardware and uh, it all just works. And that allows me to iterate on the user interface. Um, and then when I'm done and ready, I can just do one push to the device and I have confidence that, that it will work. So that was a fun uh, little excursion. And uh, it really makes me want to work on it more because it's so much easier now. Is that in fact the board behind you that you, that is like on the wall, the glowing lights back there? Yes, yes, that is the one. Okay. Yeah. So you simulated that with uh, little dots on your screen. Yeah, exactly. I just used. Uh, I haven't fully fleshed it out yet, but my thought process was that each piece of hardware could just be a gen server that keeps track of the state, and it just kind of simulates, you know, 
whether IO is on or off or whether the color of the LED, that kind of thing. You can abstract it like however you want, but but the idea is you basically yeah, just re-implementing hardware and software as like a fake simulation, basically. Yeah. Oh, I forgot cool. to mention another cool another cool upside of this. So there's uh, some animations that happen on this. And the Raspberry Pi 0W is a very anemic processor. It's single core. Uh, it's clocked very low. And so there's not a lot of resources available to doing fancy animations because it requires updating LEDs very, very frequently. And so lots of times, uh, this would basically not freeze, but it would run extremely, extremely slowly because all the CPU is literally just consumed by generating these animations. Uh, but by switching from a Linux-based OS to the Nerves, very slim OS, is actually that there's way more headroom. So the animations actually run faster, run smoother. It doesn't chug nearly as much because you don't have all those system resources being used up by the uh, operating system. So that was cool. Uh, could, could you talk more about like your first impressions with Nerves? Oh yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. So yeah, this was my first time playing around with it. Um, I found it very easy to get set up. The hardware support was very good. Everything basically just worked by following the uh, the documentation. Um, I basically the initial time you set up the nerves sort of operating system you have to flash an sd card and then you know put that in your device but i wanted to basically as quickly as possible i transitioned to pushing the updates over the air just over wi-fi so i just configured the wi-fi as quickly as possible so then i could just leave the device running anywhere and uh and you know push the new firmware to it so uh yeah that was that was all really good and uh once I figured out how to get access to the logs, that was helpful using the ring logger uh, library that they have in there. Um, and ring logger is interesting because it's a replacement for the log, like regular logger mm-hmm. uh, backend. But instead of writing to disk, the ring logger actually just keeps it memory. And so it's a, I think they call it ring logger because it might be like a ring buffer or a circular buffer or something. But the whole reason they do that is yeah, you only have a limited history of your logs, but uh, for an embedded device, if it has flash storage, if you're constantly writing logs to it, you might wear out the flash storage. And so they, they optimize for that by by not writing logs to disk. They just keep them entirely in RAM, uh, which I thought was interesting and not something I ever would have thought of. Cool. The only problem I've really had is a few times the device became unresponsive um, and required, you know, pulling the power and restarting it. Uh, probably something I did, but uh, it doesn't really. I don't really have confidence that if I was gonna like make this a, a you know, a commercial product or whatever, that uh, you know, I want to know more about that failure, those failure modes, and what happens when it does become unresponsive, and what you can do about it besides just pulling the plug. Have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> When I was working on the lullaby player I made a while back, I didn't uh, I didn't really have like a hardware abstraction per se, but but I did want to be able to develop as much on the machine on like on my laptop as possible. You know, the the things that the key presses would do, like play and pause or whatever, I was able to do from IEX. I just had functions that it would call, mm-hmm. um, and that did make it easier to develop. But I never actually got to the point of pushing updates over Wi-Fi. I was always like 
writing to an SD card and then sticking it in the mm. thing and booting it up. It's, it's a really painful development cycle for sure. So if I were to pick that back up, I, I think this setup that you have sounds good. Yeah, definitely. One thing I don't know is like, if you, if this again, just thinking about a commercial product or just even like making a device to give to someone, how, uh, you have to come up with some really complicated way to get it to connect to their Wi-Fi, basically, right? Like there's, if there's a configuration piece, you kind of have to sort of reinvent that wheel. How do you get, you know, credentials for your Wi-Fi on there, right? Because the way I did it, it's literally just, you know, burned into the config of the application. Um, but, you know, I don't know how you would sort of white label something and, you know, make it configurable for them in an easier way. Maybe the thing can phone home to uh well, no again how do you get <laughs> how do you get access to an api if you can't get on the internet so that's a uh, that's an interesting thing that i don't know uh really the right way to do it without doing the hacky thing of like hey let's you know spin up a ad hoc wi-fi network and you connect to it and you give it some info that whole thing right like you do with so many iot devices these days yeah i don't know the answer to that uh i know i know that the nerves people have done a lot of work on trying to make deployment and updates easier with stuff like nerves hub. But as far as like getting Wi-Fi access in the first place, I'm not sure that maybe, maybe some of the use cases they have in mind are where you ship a cellular connection with the device and it just plugged into it. Um, I don't know. So yeah, that was, um, it's been a fun project. Again, I'm super happy that it came out. It's been very reliable. I haven't had any problems with it. And uh, like I said, it's more performant and I have a better development life cycle and Oh, Another benefit, <laughs> the the readme file. So originally I had this, I documented every single step you had to do, install Raspbian, install the dependencies for Erlang, install all the stuff, get the code on there, configure it, blah, blah, blah. Now the readme like fits on one screen. <laughs> it's just, you know, nerves or mix firmware, mix burn, mix upload, you know, you're, you're done. So that. That's just some nice confidence in future-proofing that for myself. You don't have this whole brittle setup process or it's just just run the mix commands and plug it in and it's probably going to keep working. So, yeah. Do you treat your map like a um, like a lamp? You just like come in your office, turn it on, and like when you don't want to use it, you just flip off the switch and, and leave? For a while, I had it on a... Um, like a, a remotely controlled switch. So it would go on and off on the timer. So like at the end of the day, it would just turn off and then it would turn on in the morning. Uh, I don't know why I did that. It's not like it uses that much power uh, and it's kind of cool to have it all the time. So I just think of it more of like an ambient, like the bask in the glow. It's actually one of the things on my to-do list forever was like put it, you know, put a schedule on it so it could automatically turn off and on on a schedule. But uh, PRs are welcome. Yeah, it's 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 nice. Uh, like you said, it's a nice ambience. It's like half useful, half decoration. So right now, it's it's like all kind of. Uh, for for me, it looks like it's a bunch of turquoise lights. So what does uh, that mean? They're how's all green. The, how's so the weather? It's a it's a VFR day today here. Uh, really clear skies, not a lot of wind, no okay. clouds or anything. So they are all green. So if if and, the wind starts blowing and we get some stormy weather coming through, how's that map going to look? Yeah, so the green is VFR, blue is marginal VFR. That's when the clouds start lowering. So between um, 1,000 and 3,000 feet, if that's where the clouds are, it's going to be blue. And then below 1,000 feet, if that's where your cloud ceiling is, then they'll, they'll be red. And then if it's really low, really low visibility or really low clouds like fog, 
uh, snow, that kind of thing. Then there'll be the the magenta color. So those are the four sort of unofficial colors for those different categories. Lots of different weather apps use the same color scheme. So, so if it's all magenta back there, you're not going to be getting in a plane. Uh, no. Sometimes, some days, uh, you get like a bingo where you get like a few of each color. <laughs> Especially in the springtime. Would you accept a PR if in uh, three weeks it simulates the apocalypse, give you a little scare? <laughs> Just a slowly expanding uh, radiation cloud? Yeah, you should absolutely. That should be like you should have a button under the table when people come over, you tell them about it. Oh, yeah, so it simulates. Oh, what's that? That's not supposed to happen. The whole thing just starts flashing bright red. <laughs> so definitely some possibilities there. Have you thought about other data that you'd like to visualize in a similar fashion? It's a great question. Um, I've always liked ambient uh, visualization devices. One of my first ones was I actually had a traffic light. And uh, that was fun because just three lights. Uh, this is like like legit traffic light, like probably three or four feet tall, uh, aluminum. And uh, originally, I used it for like displaying like email notifications and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I really like the idea of that. I'm not really sure on a map what else you could do. Uh, maybe traffic that could be a cool one. Uh, maybe if you had like a, a globe. You could display, you know, who's visiting my website right now, that kind of thing, right? Uh, IP addresses of of uh, active visitors on your site, all kinds of possibilities. I'd like to have a traffic light in my house that's like noise level of children, you know, like children, it's yellow, <laughs> children, it's red now, you have to be quiet. <laughs> Father's patience, it's just a turning <laughs> dial. Yeah. We ha- they had that in my elementary school lunchroom, but I'm pretty sure as a human, you know, controlling it. That that would just be a, a challenge for my boys. How how high can we run run up the score? So it would backfire. <laughs> it's so true. Could you talk more about the um the actual hardware involved? I haven't done any embedded or gotten to play with nerves yet. So I'm really curious, like how do you begin getting these two things to talk to each other? How do you you know, how do you actually hook up all of that hardware? Yeah, that's one thing I really should put in the in the repository is just like a schematic and parts list of this stuff. But um, there's actually very few components here. Again, it's the Raspberry Pi Zero W. Um, good luck getting one right now. They're challenging. The LEDs are uh, also, they use a, a standard LED sort of format. Uh, they're called, uh, also known as NeoPixels. There's another one called Dot Stars, which is slightly different. Um, but NeoPixels are sort of the ones that, that have been around the longest. They have all different form factors strips individual leds uh you know 2d arrays and the nice thing about that is they're so ubiquitous that there's libraries for communicating with them so like there's there, uh, the library I used here is called blink chain and so it knows how to talk to the leds you just have to tell it hey led index whatever is this color and it just kind of does it so and those are just uh those hook up regular to the io pins on the raspberry pi uh, the power supply is just a five volt power supply. It's a very beefy one to power, you know, to provide power to LEDs. And uh, the only other real piece of hardware was the uh, the light sensor, and that took a little bit of electrical engineering uh, knowledge. But basically, it's uh, it's a resistive 
uh, it's a photosensitive resistor. And so when the ambient light in the room changes, it changes the, basically the voltage across that component. And we can detect that in the Raspberry Pi uh, and then adjust based off of that. So there's lots of uh, like simple circuit examples for that kind of thing. But yeah, it's known as a, a photodiode, or I think it's a photoresistor technically. But that's um, that's really it in terms of in terms of uh, hardware components. Yeah, Zach. How how granular is the um, like the measurement on the photoresistor piece? Like, is it essentially does it just measure like a high low once it gets dim enough, or does it have like a range where it's kind of adjusts things? Yeah, uh, it's it, it. I do have it configurable because you know just so you can tweak it. And uh, it uses uh, a thing called a technique called hysteresis, where, like, let's say this color range is from the brightness range from zero to one hundred. So maybe once the brightness gets above sixty, then it sort of latches high, and so and then only if the brightness drops below forty do you tr- you know count it as low. So that way it leaves you a little bit of wiggle room there. So if you're maybe right on the edge between like sixty, fifty nine, fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty. It's not flickering, right? <laughs> it just kind of once it reaches that threshold, it stays in that threshold until it drops below a new threshold. So that's a little technique that I use to sort of, you know, those those two numbers are configurable with photoresistors. It is tricky because light is like logarithmic. You know, it's sort of uh, you think of like decibels. You know how like with an earthquake, you know, one one uh, number on the Richter scale is like a doubling of power or whatever. The same kind of thing with light, where a little bit of light change generates to a large linear change. And so you have to sort of account for that when you're sort of doing these things. You can sort of basically remap the, you know, the, the, the changes in the values so that it's something more, more reasonable that you'd expect in linear. I don't know if that made sense. Basically, you lose some sensitivity when things are like really bright or really dark because you can't really detect those changes. Our eyes can detect the changes really easily, but it's a little bit harder without a big having a big dynamic range available to like measure. Cool. Anything else on that before we move to another topic? Uh, I will uh, post a link to the repo, the old one. I just I basically started over uh, from scratch, so I, I just left the old one there. Um, but the new one is Mitar Map Nerves. And I'll put a link in the show notes if people are curious about how this crap all works. There's a link to uh, the photo album that shows how I built it as well. Cool. And it does look awesome. Thanks. Um, Brooklyn, you wanted to talk about some things you've been working on? Yeah. Uh, this will probably be a pretty quick thing. I don't know how much detail there is to go into it. But um been getting to play around a lot with Kino and Livebook. So Livebook, that's what the Docker Academy course is going to be built on. You start up a Livebook server, it shows all of your different .libmd files, and then you can run and evaluate Elixir code alongside Markdown instruction. Kino adds some utility to that where you can do like form inputs, uh, you can do data tables and graphs, and so it adds a bunch of different visual elements. And one of the awesome things about Kino is that it lets you create now your own custom widgets. So there's a Kino.js and Kino.js Live module that allows you to render your own custom HTML. And with the Kino.js Live, you actually get two-way communication. So you can have your Kino.js Live module 
with Elixir, and then you can go back and forth communicating between your um, HTML JavaScript asset uh, and your actual um, live widget. Uh, so that has let me build some some fun stuff. I'm looking for for more things to actually build with it because I'm just kind of scratching the surface. Uh, but one thing it let me build was a validated form. So as students are entering in their answers for a question, uh, maybe they're doing comparison operators and it gives them a question, okay, what comparison operator is going to evaluate to true when it's seven something seven? It's like, oh, well, you know, double equals, that's going to be true. So they type that in. And once they get the right answer, it highlights green, giving them that positive feedback. So they actually know, oh, okay, I've, I've done it correctly. Um, and it's a little bit more intuitive. Like one alternative would be to run an X unit test or something on their input, but then you have to go read that test. It's not immediate. It also like doesn't trigger those good brain. Oh, it's green uh, sensations. So uh, it's a little bit more exciting when you see it. Um, the other thing I got to build, uh, which was a lot of fun and, and super useful uh, for some of the stuff I want to do is I keep calling it live slide because that was the original project name, but now it's just a Kino module. Uh, it's called Kino.slide. And what it allows you to do is have a slideshow within your lesson. So you can uh, power images with it. You could power different markdown with it. It'll return whatever you give it. As long as you give it a list of some information, you can even do like uh, you can even return numbers if that's what you wanted it to do. Um, and so you you give it some sort of a list. You say, okay, make a new slide, and then it will give you a button for every different element that you define. So you give it three different images that you want the student to cycle through. They can go one, two, three, and it'll show those images as they click through. So that was designed to replace some animations that I've made. Another cool thing that Kino lets you do is make animations. So uh, that's something that my um, horrible sense of style and design has had a lot of fun with, uh, making all sorts of different animations to, to show processes and things like that. But every once in a while, uh, I wanted to do an animation that was for code. So I wanted to show, okay, like we have a case statement. How do you really intuit and understand what a case statement is doing? Because when you already know what it's doing, it's really difficult to walk through it and explain. It's like, this is just a bunch of symbols. Um, if I don't know what those symbols are doing, you're telling me, oh, it matches on this. Like, why? Why does it do that? What is it doing step-by-step step under the hood? How can I visualize that? And my first attempt at solving that mental problem was animation. But the problem with that is you'd, you'd evaluate the whole notebook, typically. Your animation would start playing without you actually seeing it. And then by the time you scroll down to it, you're halfway through that animation. You're in the middle of a sequence. You're like, I don't know what's happening. And then maybe you'd catch the start, but it's either going so slow that you're like, okay, I'm just waiting for this to go back so that I can understand it. Or it's going so fast that you don't actually have the time to read the text. So I was thinking like, okay, maybe we could provide controls or something like that, but decided that just a, a slideshow would be a lot better. So now you have your code example, you have your case and it'll walk through step-by-step. Step. Well, here's how that case statement is evaluating, or here's how a function is executing. Here's what it's doing under the hood. And uh, hopefully that will help students kind of understand um, the actual flow of code. Um, I was very surprised to find out that it handled images. It was one of those things I wrote up specifically for Markdown and Code. And then I asked myself, hey, I, will this work with an image? I was literally walking through it with someone kind of demoing. And I'm like, oh, can it do an image? And I'm like, I don't know. 
Uh, maybe. Let's try. And just put an image in a little markdown block. And yeah, it totally works with images. Um, if I want to do, for example, a... I'm not a big lecturer. Uh, I think lecturer has its place, depending on how it's used, but it's not always a very good content delivery mechanism for information. So these slides would let me actually do my lecture within the live book. If I just convert like a existing slideshow into images and then render those images, I can walk through my slides in the actual live book as I'm talking. That's, that's like a theory. I don't know what's going to be the best solution, but that would mean that if students want to go back or they want to follow along, they would actually have access to that. And I don't need to give them my, you know, Google slide or whatever. Um, so yeah, there's lots of cool things that it kind of opens up and, with Livebook and Kino now, you can do basically anything you want. Uh, you can make any custom widget. So um, I think there's a lot of exciting possibilities to explore there. That's really cool. I like that you're thinking about how to help students see, like walk through what is the case statement doing? Because I think that's that's really important. I remember when I was first learning to program, uh, my mentor walking me through like a for loop, you know, where at each, each round you're incrementing I and then like, okay, you get to the next round. Now what's going to happen? I is three. What's it going to do? <laughs> you know, just, and just having to slow down and think at that, at that pace, um, it feels kind of like I'm an idiot. Like, okay, no, I is three. Is I greater than four? No, <laughs> but, <laughs> but having to, having to like do that step-by-step step and think like a computer um, was really helpful. And just knowing that that's how you do it. And, and, you know, sometimes you still have to get back down to that level and, and, and or even, even, even if it's not the details of code, it can be architecture. It can be like, well, what happens if, okay, let's say this message arrives and then this message message arrives after it. What's going to, what, you know, how's the system going to react to that? Um, or let's say that this is in the middle of happening and this fails. <laughs> then, you know, what's going to happen? Just getting down to those nitty gritty details is really good. So I, I like that you're sort of teaching that that kind of detailed walk through it, think like a computer. Mm -hmm. It's really it's very easy to take for granted when you have done it long enough that you can just hold some code in your head and kind of like walk through how it would evaluate and imagine that, or you have the debugging tools to actually execute the code, watch it walk through and you can figure out that way if it's particularly complex. Um, but I, I've gotten some opportunities to tutor, which I'm very grateful for because it, it helps with that curse of knowledge. So the curse of knowledge by knowing too much about something you forget what it's like to not know about that thing. And then you become incapable of explaining it because you just lack the, the you use terminology that doesn't make sense. You don't understand the perspective. So I try to eliminate that bias as much as possible. Um, and yeah, I've gotten to sit down with a student and like just walking through, like calling a function, here's an argument. What's going to be the value of that parameter. That's like a hard thing to wrap your head around. It's not this intuitive, even though it's like, a fundamental kind of basic building block. Um, there's a lot of stumbling blocks for people early on. So hoping to eliminate as many of those as possible. When I'm looking through the Kino docs here, and this is super, super interesting. One thing that immediately comes to mind is uh, scenic, right? And that's a way to sort of render pixels on a screen. And uh, I know Brian's been working on some some fun things with that as well. Uh, I don't want to spoil his thing if he, he's uh wants to talk about it at some point, but I was just wondering if there's uh if you had considered using scenic for 
any sort of illustrations or visualizations here, or if that's even a good tie-in. I'm not, I don't even know. It might be, it might be a great tie-in. I don't have enough scenic experience to say it, but thank you for introducing it to me because now I can go in, try it out, see if it's good. Um, a lot of the times I'm using um, Kino Animate with a combination of Markdown to do some animation. Like uh, I recently animated a traffic light to talk about state. So I wanted it to go through, you know, red, yellow, green. So my solution and so far my needs have been simple enough that I can just uh, render some Markdown, put that in an animation, uh, say, okay, like have these lights, all of them will have a black background and only apply the background color whenever it's that particular light's turn in the animation. Um, so that has been kind of, you know, simplistic stuff. There hasn't been anything overly... I, I try to keep the bites short and sweet because I, I can spend a lot of time on an animation and it'll be two minutes of student time. Uh, so I try to keep my my things as high impact as possible. The, the very cool thing for me... Um, with these animations and with these widgets is that it opens up things that I can do in the long term. Like I can make really interactive exercises with like a full UI all within Livebook. Theoretically, it would just be an, an amount of effort that for the first run through the course, isn't a good cost um, equation, but that means we can always be adding things. There's lots of creativity Um there's a part of me that that's even considering teaching the students how to use Kino and Lightbook, but yeah, that's a that's cool. I'll check that scenic. Thank you for that idea. I am looking for project ideas, uh, things that I can. I'm now kind of done the fundamentals section of the course, and I'm working on uh, getting them to actually work with Elixir locally. Um, so far, I have a few different project ideas, like a weather CLI and um, distributed rock paper scissors and things like that, but. I'm looking for other ideas there if, if people have them. I got into uh, doing it the advent of code at the end of last year, and uh, which is a uh, you know daily code challenges throughout the month of December. And uh, the first they, they get increasingly difficult as the month goes on, but they um, the first like few days worth of challenges I think are are like ripe for maybe like fun code challenges that might teach concepts, especially in functional programming. Some of those, some of those problems are very, very well suited to purely functional solutions for things. So um, those, and they're, and they're fun, I think. So it might be something yeah. worth checking out. Joe and Jose published his live books of most advent of code days on his repo. And for many of them, there's also, Twitch videos of him solving them. And for some of them, there's even like an edited down YouTube version of the Twitch video. That's a great idea. Yeah, that would be super useful. There's there's uh, a few different things I pull inspiration from. That's something I should be pulling more inspiration from. Thank you. I don't know. I haven't tried to do this in Elixir, but it's one of the most fun things I've ever programmed. And it goes back to like a, a demo that somebody did for me in college, back before I was even doing programming, but my roommate was, which is a, a Markov chain generator, which get, it takes in text and then splits it up based either by word or by character. And then it sort of like reconstructs probabilistically. So like, like let's say you have TH. It's very likely that the next character is going to be E, but it could be A because it's building the word that. Or you can do it word by word. And so you take whatever text you put in it's going to spit out text 
kind of similar to that, uh, sort of statistically. So I, I did this in Ruby a long time ago. I just pulled up the readme. So I, I put in the Constitution of the United States, and then I spit out word by word, a word by word markup chain, and it says, with foreign powers and to all other shall be failure the House of President, the disagree that the, the disagree to that the two this Congress of them or from the people of the absent transmits like that. It's like it sounds <laughs> kind of like the Constitution, but it isn't. You know, awesome. And so, <laughs> um, is it just running through like your your text and then taking the first couple letters of each word and then applying this this function to each? So, so, so in this case, it's split word by word. So it's like after the word foreign, what's likely to happen? Well, powers happens after the word foreign, and then after powers and is a likely choice. So it shows that. Um, and it, it's it's random, but it's kind of probabilistic, right? So if you do it twice, you're going to get different different output. Very but cool. then if you have it, it split letter by letter, then you get nonsense words, but they they, they look like English words, like the United of No Moro Moss Term, O-S-T-E-R-M. That could be a word, but it isn't, right? But it looks like an English word. Office president, he united, noon the senators, ender subjection, shall take, shall taker supremo value, shall nor it. <laughs> like, like, total nonsense. Uh, but, but you know, if, if, if you put in Spanish text, you'll get something that looks like Spanish, but isn't, you know? Uh, so, Anyway, that's that's kind of a, a fun thing, and the concept is is pretty simple. You just break it down into chunks, and then like score how often you've seen them, and then you produce something that follows that distribution. So th- I don't know if that would be uh, a fun. I don't know if that would be too hard or too easy, or too, I don't know whatever. But it's, it's pretty fun to see it spit something out. You're like, I made it do that. <laughs> that's really great. I, I yeah, anything that is enjoyable when you're done with it like that, that is a fun thing for you to come back to and use. That's a really cool idea. Um, I'm looking for more on like a string manipulation section. I want to, I've kind of skipped it and I want to circle back to it. Cause I think that's an important topic. I think that would be really good as like a lab or something like that. I enjoy writing code that like makes me laugh in the end. <laughs> so mm. I wrote a, I wrote a rust package for generating uh, anagrams and that, that takes a lot more work because it all has to be legitimate words and, and everything. So that's why I ended up having to do it in rust to make it perform it. Uh, and also it was an excuse to do it in rust, but uh, it's really fun to be able to stick in some random phrase. Like I put in um, Rust programming, and anagrams of that include grim gun port arms and asymmetry foe and tarring prom mugs. So that's the Rust programming. Uh, memory safety, me, my artsy foe, and ye soft yammer, and format my eyes. <laughs> so... In, in, in uh, the book, uh, Dave Barry in Cyberspace, which was uh, written in the mid-90s, uh, that was one of his required recommended programs for new computer users and anagram generator. Some good ones in there. He even did a challenge where he challenged, he had someone at the like Washington Post uh, challenge them to write better anagrams in the computer. So, yeah, good stuff. That's awesome. I think that's actually probably where I got that idea because I was a big fan of, of Dave Barry and and he would crack. He would crack people. He'd be like, you know, mention some politician, and by the way, their name can spell something that sounds like vaguely uh, immoral or something. <laughs> Ross H. Perot is like short poser. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, uh, what um what filtering mechanism? Because I, I actually have an anagram exercise. Funny enough. Um, in it, but I haven't imposed the restriction that you have to generate actual words. So it's more of a like permutation generator. 
So what mechanism do you use to actually ensure that the output is valid? Are you like going to some dictionary API or how do you, how do you make sure that those words are actually words? Yeah. So I have a word list, uh, which is uh, you can use like, I always forget where the file is, but it's like et cetera dictionary or something like that. There's a, there's a word mm-hmm. list that ships on your Mac. It's just uh, every line is an English word. Um, so, but you can specify the word list that you want. And I've set it up so that it prioritizes words at the beginning in, in forming things. So if you're like, I want to make, you know, poop joke anagrams, then you can put poop words at the beginning of the, the file. <laughs> or, or, you know, if you're trying to make, you know, something come out with politics or sports teams or whatever, you can put that at the top of the file. So uh, it, it prioritizes that way. Uh, and then you can also tell it, like, how many you want it to build. And but this is on crates.io slash crates slash swappy. That's the the package. You can cargo install Swappy and run it if you really want to. Um, but yeah, so so you can specify that stuff. Um, but it it's um, it's very expensive. Uh, it's a very expensive operation to go through all the words. I mean, it, for every actual anagram it generates, it sometimes will consider millions of possibilities. <laughs> so it's just crazy. Um, because it, it's like it's like what can I build with the letters that I have left, and then is that a valid word? The details of the algorithm actually have fallen out of my head because it's been a while since I worked on this. But I know I've I've done it before in, uh, I, I tried to do it in Elixir, I did it in Ruby, I think. Uh, but Rust is the I think this is the final version because it's fast and it's fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that'd be a great great for the section I'm working on right now. Actually, where they would do that locally, get to have the file, have to load that in. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Have you have you checked um, Elixir track on exorcism.io? Yeah, that is my Bible. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm on exorcism almost every day mm. through uh, oh, nice, nice. brilliant ideas there. So, Yeah, they have some pretty interesting uh, exercises that are not like cross language, like are they, that were crafted for Elixir specifically, and they're very good and interesting. Yeah, agreed. A lot of my exercises, I'll admit, take inspiration from those and then apply some mm-hmm. nerdy twist to it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Cool, Often, cool. if you just add the word D&D to the start of the title, that's basically the exercise that I did. <laughs> Elixir Roundtable can be rearranged to spell Unreliable Dirt Ox, just so you know. That should be the new title of the podcast. <laughs> episode title right there. Do we have episode titles? We should. <laughs> we do. We use numbers. We, we, should, do. we should have. Oh, we do. Okay, I thought it was just like roundtable number one, roundtable number two. It was for a while. It was. It was. It was the lazy system, but I think we we're gonna have titles now. I think okay. we just found it. Oh yeah. All right. So let's move along. <laughs> Mike, you've been working on Flame On. We talked about that before. Uh, you had. You said you wanted to share a couple new things. Yeah. So yeah, as we mentioned in the last one, uh, Flame On uh, library we released it a couple weeks back. Um, and it's been going well. Um, it seems like a, a number of people are using it. Um, we ended up got some some error reports back from it, and then we actually used uh, used it in an internal project for some uh, uh, architectural analysis and, and profiling on a project. And through that process, we're able to identify what what was going on in in the underlying library they were using to that was that was causing this issue. It's a really really interesting uh, problem to dig through. Basically, uh, we're using eFlambe under the under the hood, and it what it how that works is it takes your Elixir code and swaps out swaps it out with a mock, uh, mock version that 
starts tracing and then calls into the original module and then um, stops tracing. And we kept kept running to this issue where where the, where when it would try to stop tracing, uh, or, or it would actually it would, when it tried to unload the mock, it would it would crash and it would just stop. It would say it's not mock. Um, and initially, I was thinking it was something to do with it, multiple requests firing and one one mocking, the second one failing to mock, or, or the second one uh, remocking, and then the first one unmocking, and the second one saying, "Hey, you know, it, it's not there." Turns out, actually, um, it was with this with this pro project we were working on, actually with uh, with uh, Zach and, and Rockwell, um, realized it was actually a, a recursion issue. So. When when it called recursively called into itself, it was it was uh, e was was smart enough to say, "Hey, this is already tracing. Let's not start a new trace." But then at the end of the call, it would still try to un unmock the uh, the code, and so the the internal call would unmock the code, which would result in the the um, the flame graph getting cut off. But then it would also uh, Throw an error when the when the outside external one tried to unmock because the internal call had already un, had already unmocked it, and so um, figure that out uh, quick. Um, oh, I had to uh, <laughs> dive back into Erlang and 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 uh, and uh, figure that out again. It's been a while. Uh, got that fixed. Pushed that up to Ethan Bay and a, a new version of Playmon using that. So uh, the the results that we were then generating after that were much more. Reliable. We got full, full, uh, full flame graphs, and uh, no more of those errors. So, if you are one of the ones that tried that out uh, uh, when it first came out, and you ran into those issues, uh, try it out again. Uh, I think uh, 030 is the latest one that has that fix. But yeah, definitely uh, love to see see that get some use and see what uh, how that's helpful for people. Um, and if you, if you haven't heard about it, it's basically a flame graph generator that uh, will allow you to, uh, that can be dropped into live dashboard or a live view uh, through a live component. It was interesting watching you debug this. And I learned, I mean, I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, I had a conceptual knowledge in my head that the the beam has tail, you know, tail, eh, tail call optimization, right? Where the stack won't grow infinitely. But I I never thought, a that like there are situations where maybe you don't expect it, but it's still optimizing out the tail call, even if you're not like just doing a typical recursive thing, right? And so lots of times things will just disappear because even if you're not expecting it, right? If you're not doing some recursion thing, uh, it can still happen to you. It can still be optimized out, uh, which I thought was really interesting, and. That also, I also learned why sometimes things don't show up in the stack traces for that exact reason. I didn't, I didn't, I would just, I don't know what I thought was happening there, whether it was just some, some bug or something, but uh, it is super annoying when, when it optimizes out things out of your stack trace and it makes it difficult to find things sometimes. And I know that issue has been brought up uh, more than once in the past and I guess it's basically unfixable. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely. It was that was something that that um, that for me uh, was frustrating. That the idea. So it's helpful, obviously, that the tail call optimization so the stack doesn't you know, overload when you're recursively calling stuff. Um, but the idea of dropping out, dropping the your path back, especially when you're trying to debug issues and working through where where in the code this blew up, just having like a basically a a, a huge section of the stack trace which would have been useful 
just gone and having to kind of um, work your way back up actually from from both ends of the of the gap to try to figure out where the code code went it is annoying when trying to track that stuff but yeah when it when it comes to the um, flame graphs is actually interesting because it you you actually lose out on information that is you you might you know you would need to to track stuff down and even in the example that i wrote for the for um i think for the blog i you know i had three functions foo bar and baz but they were all tail call optimized out initially so when you ran it you couldn't actually see them in the flame graph because all you saw was the sleep which they actually called into and so i had to change it so that it would do the sleep and then return some other random value so that it wasn't tail call optimized out. Yeah, and uh, you'll actually see that in the in the in the tracing in the background. You'll see that uh, the way the way tracing works is it basically every time it uh, it calls into a function, it sends a message saying you know entering this function, entering this function, and then returning from this function, returning from this function. And one of the issues is that the uh, I'm still working through trying to figure, identify this, but in in Ephon Bay, you'll get a you'll get a slew of um, unexpected return to calls where it's working its way back up the stack but it doesn't know that it was there and so it's it, the the thing that it's expecting to be on the 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 you know the bottom of the or top of the stack bottom of the stack whichever isn't isn't the right thing so you'll get warnings uh, dump out about that and yeah i i i, I mentioned this to jose uh, a while back is there a way to say hey for this for this you know can we can we run without dropping you know, stack frames and just leave it on the stack. And, and he was, he said, no, there's not re really not, not a way to do that. That's easy, but um, that would be something that'd be interesting. If, if, if we could, if there was a way to say, Hey, run, run the code and don't drop off tail call optimized stuff because yeah, it's helpful for this. And obviously you wouldn't run that in production or anything like that, but, but for debugging, it would be, would be super useful. Yeah. I've never really dug into when that happens. You know, I've, I've noticed that sometimes things are missing from the stack trace, but I haven't dug into why that happens now. I want to go like construct an example and raise an exception and see what I can make not show up. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's used, information that would definitely be useful if we had it, but there's obviously reasons why it's beneficial to drop it. Yeah. It would be, it would be great to have a flag that says, don't do that this time. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's deep in the in the Erlang, uh, beam. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would definitely want it to not grow the stack infinitely when it's recursing over this in the same function. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Where, but that, but that, you know, at first I was like, well, you know, only 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 add one entry for any given uh, line to the stack. But then the problem is if you're looking through three calls, right? And it's just it's you know then well now is that now do you have add those in um, so it, it need to be it need to be smart and that's obviously going to add overhead and um, you know who knows what other things are are relying on that that sort of a thing yeah always the, the painful trade-offs between speed and readability and usability and all that sort of stuff well uh, I think that wraps it up then uh, thanks for listening watching or otherwise consuming the elixir roundtable however however you do that uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please make a cardboard cutout of any participant and tell it how much you enjoyed their comments. Thanks for coming on.